0: Hey, this is Annie. It's Mitha. And welcome to Stefano Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. And it's time for another female first, which means we are once again delighted to be joined by the wonderful, magnificent Eve. Welcome, Eve. Hey, thank you for the welcome. Back for another yes. installment. I'm excited as usual. I'm excited too. I'm excited for a lot of reasons about this one. I did want to, I feel like we always have these really interesting conversations before we start recording. This one, we talked a lot about teeth. Yes. But I want to ask you, Eves, a couple questions. One, are you a morning person? It depends on the time of year and the phase of
3: life. (laughs) (laughs) So right now I am because I really love starting my mornings with like yoga and meditation. So right now I am. And that's probably like, that's probably going to be an indefinite thing because honestly, when I was younger, I wasn't a huge nighttime person. Like I knew people who could stay up all night working, watching TV, and I was never like that. So I would say, yes, I'm more of a morning midday and also love sunlight. So I think Mm. I'll probably stay in that stay in that area.
0: Yeah, yeah. Samantha and I were curious because when we record these, you're always like, let's do 10 or 10. Okay, (laughs) Okay, so here's my apology for that.
3: (laughs) No, no. You don't have to apologize. I do think about that because I do say 10.30. It's because, you know, I feel like it's at that time of day where it's like, if I need to do any like refreshing right before I have time Mm -hmm. to do that. I know my voice is woken up a little bit more, but it's not too late in the day where I'm like, okay <laughs> <laughs> like, <laughs> double, away with all of that other mess like it's time for me to be with myself mm-hmm. so I just feel like it's
0: a good time of day for me but you know
2: if
3: you're no, not that's cool, great, just let me know
0: <laughs> no. no I actually um I've kind of gone through a shift when I was younger I was very much like a night owl uh I hated the morning like dreaded them uh, that might have had more to do with not being a morning person necessarily, but like not liking school. Who knows? But I had a really dramatic shift after college where I've become much more I'm actually both a morning person and a night owl. Okay. But yeah. Okay. You sleep. Right. What <laughs> you're saying, yeah, I was gonna say what you're saying I you don't, don't sleep very much. <laughs> but I am. I some I'm somebody who's probably the most awake around this time but almost everyone else I work with isn't. So a morning recording session is just rare for me. Okay. I've got no qualms or complaints. I was just curious. <laughs> okay.
2: No, we had intended to start at 1130, but because of me and me not being a morning person, I'm like, let's do it at one. Let's <laughs> one. one sounds good.
0: <laughs> no problems and I, this is not some weird oh, like, no. <laughs> way of
2: trying to get you to change your ways. I was just curious. Oh, no, it makes it better because it actually gets me to start the day because I am the procrastinator of the crew. But I'm like, huh, she likes to get into this. Let's go.
0: <laughs> yes. And I am excited to talk about this because I actually did spend about a year in Australia. Yeah. Um, and I, I lived with an indigenous Aboriginal Australian wow. uh, community for about four or five months. Uh, and it was one of the best most rewarding learning experiences I've ever had and I'm continually like because I was kind of randomly assigned to that project I'm continually grateful for it so this really it brought back a lot of good memories and kind of the power of I think we all like traveling here in this crew and like that there's so many beautiful things there and I had such a good time so I'm very very excited to talk about this yeah I remember
3: you mentioning that I don't know a ton about aboriginal culture So you definitely, obviously, have way more living experience with it than I do. That I've never even been to Australia. So yeah, um, seems like a really beautiful place though. And I know that there is a lot, lot, lot of history there um, when it comes to Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, and it's a, a history that is greatly marked by colonization and imperialism, as are a lot of other places around the world, and that. There is a lot of hardship, but also a lot of beauty um, in Aboriginal culture. So I'm excited to talk
0: about it, too. So yes, who did you bring for us to discuss today, Eve?
3: So, oh, just a, a quick disclaimer before we begin. I understand that there may be some kind of sensitivity around hearing the names of deceased Aboriginal Australians for some people. So just wanted to put a content warning up front that some names will be mentioned here. If you are sensitive to listening to that kind of thing, then you might want to skip this episode at the time. And also just to say that there, as with naming and so many things, it's, it's so in flux, it's So many times, and it's different for individuals as well as communities and societies when it comes to what we call these peoples, Aboriginal peoples, First Nations (laughs) peoples, using specific cultural groups themselves. So the new Mm -hmm. knuckle people, which are ones we're going to be talking about today. I'll try to interchange them a lot as we're speaking because I can't determine for anybody what they're comfortable with hearing. I'm just going by what is generally accepted to be good when it comes to usage for people who are not part of the cultures.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point because when I was there, just with like any topic we talk about, you know, not it's not a monolith and people prefer different terms. And I think when I was there, the way that people spoke about it has changed. Just like a lot of Mm -hmm. us, there's been a lot of change. (laughs) I feel like for the better, mostly about like we need to be more aware of Uh, the words we use and why we use them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it's changed from when I was there. Uh, So yeah, that's a great point of just, it's still in flux. Um, There's still these conversations happening and not everyone agrees.
3: Yeah. Yes, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I guess we'll get into it now. So we're going to be talking about Ujuru Knuckle, also known as Kath Walker. As a preface to all that, I'll say that she was a poet She was a storyteller, she was a visual artist, and she was an educator. So she had a long and storied life that we're going to talk about today. So we'll start with her birth. She was born on November 3rd, 1920. Um, She was from Minjerabah, which is the name of what's now called North Stratbrook Island, um, in a language that the New Knuckle people speak, which is the group that she was a part of. They're one of the peoples who were tra- traditionally lived on I- that island. Um, and that island is in Moreton Bay in Queensland. So I'll I kind of start off calling her Kath Walker since her name did change over time. But at this point, she was n- referred to as Kath Walker. Um, her grandmother was the daughter of a white man and a New Knuckle woman, and her Kath Walker's grandmother married a German man, and one of their children was named Edward, Edward, AKA Ted, and that was Kath's father. He lived and he worked on Mandiraba. She remarks very fondly about her time there and her time spent with him and the things that he taught her while they lived on the island together. So her mother, Kath's mother, was Lucy. She also had a white father, and an Aboriginal mother, and together, the two of them had seven children together. So, yeah, he taught her things that are themes throughout her life, nature, animals, communing with nature. Her dad taught her and her siblings how to catch food like fish and bandicoots and all of these practical things that it, when it came to surviving and living in the area. And her totem is a, the carpet snake. So a totem is... An object, a plant, or an animal that is passed down through a family as a sort of spiritual emblem. And the carpet snake, there's a cute story that she tells about. There's also a poem she wrote regarding that that totem. But she talks about how her dad, they kept a snake around the house, which is not something I would be of but uh-huh. like she talks about how the snake just hung around the house and when her father passed away the snake just kind of disappeared and there was questioning around whether that snake left because you know the person that it was attached to left or if her mother really wasn't here for that snake being left. <laughs> so was it her? we don't know but uh, I mm-hmm. thought that was like a really cute story Her life, but yeah, she said that she was left-handed, but her school teacher forced her to write with her right, which isn't an unusual thing. But she also said that from the time she was a child, she liked to play with words, like playing with a jigsaw puzzle. So her love for the like her interest in the arts and writing came on pretty early. When she was 13, though, her school education ended and she began live-in domestic work to be able to provide. And for context, this was during the time of the Great Depression. So there were a lot of economic hardships for a lot of people. And there were also Aboriginal Australians under authority who added a lot of hardships on top of that. So, but She did talk about how much fun and how fondly she remembered her time on the island. So in 1942, during World War II, she joined the Australian Women's Army Service. She also had other family members who were in the military. But she learned switchboard operation and soon became corporal and was put in charge of training new people And she also soon married Bruce Walker, which is where that last name, Walker, comes in. He was a boxer and a welder whom she had known since childhood. They settled in Brisbane, and she worked with the AWAS until 1944. And she played sports, um, so a bunch of different sports. But one of them was Crico, which I hadn't heard of until, I mean... Maybe y'all have, I don't know if you had, maybe Annie, because you've been there, but it was a game that was based on cricket devised specifically for women's teams in
0: Australia. Yeah. Oh, I played some rounds. <laughs> you did? No. Yeah. How were you at it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I wasn't very good. But one time, <laughs> one time I knocked it out of the park, man.
2: <laughs> and that that will be like my shining achievement. <laughs> so it's essentially cricket, but for women. And they just changed the name. Mm-hmm. Huh.
3: I'm not the one <laughs> to tell you about the mechanics of the sport. I'm
2: not a big sports it's complicated. person. So.
3: It's okay. So complicated. Okay. <laughs> complicated.
0: Sticky wicket.
2: I know we have some Australian <laughs> listeners, so if they can let us know, that'd be yes. fantastic. Yes. Please. Yes, please. I
0: would love that.
1: <laughs> can I rant for a sec? Please.
3: So she was interested in the Communist Party for Hot Minute, was a little involved in it, read Communist Works, but she never really latched on there or in general aligned with political parties much, though she did decades later run in elections for the Labor Party and for the Australian Democrats. So she and Bruce Walker, they did have a son together who was born in 1946, but the couple separated And Kath had to turn back to domestic work and a family that she worked for encouraged her to pursue her interest in the arts and she later had another son with a member of that family. So that's a little background on her early life and how she started to veer into the art space and into the activist space as well, because those things both ran parallel in her life. Like they went hand in hand. A lot of her work referred to the things that she cared about in general in life that were important to her, but that were also big issues at the time when it came to Aboriginal rights. So she joined the Brisbane Realist Writers Group, which was a group that met to read and critique each other's work. And she met this Australian writer named James Devaney, who encouraged her to read and study other poets. So yeah, pause for a little bit more context in terms of colonization there, deal with colonization does. Um, Like you said earlier, Samantha, I know there are Australian listeners out there as well, but it's a thing that um, many people have been affected by around the world. And the European invaders who colonized the island brought with it a host of issues that are often universal issues that happen in other places, but ones that are specific to that place as well. And obviously, Aboriginal peoples existed and exist in that land. And among them, there was all this government control that was happening of the Aboriginal peoples and the Torres Strait Islanders. There were things like dispossession, movement restriction, family separation, <laughs> um poverty and hunger. I'm like laughing because these are things that, like I can relate to as well when it comes to. Um, colonization in the United States. But yeah, so legislation in Queensland that limited the rights of Aboriginal peoples called the Queensland Acts as a whole was particularly devastating to them. There were ones like the Aboriginals Preservation and Protection Act, which was later replaced by the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Affairs Act. Um, There were a bunch of different policies that were enacted under these acts. But uh, for instance, just to mentioned some of them. Officers could control how Aboriginal people spent and managed their money. Um, There was a Queensland Trust Fund that was under a lot of heat by a lot of the activists, including Kath Walker. And you can go and read more about that. But there was also other things like the Director of Native Affairs was the legal guardian of every Aboriginal child in the state. So there was a lot of paternalism happening. And a big part of Kath Walker's fight and other activists' fight was pushing back against this really huge, oppressive, paternalistic force and letting First Nations people control their own lives (laughs) to not have white people speak for them in politics and on councils and instead for them to speak for themselves, which sounds like duh, Mm -hmm. but you know— That wasn't the case. She also campaigned for Aboriginal land rights. And as she said in one 1970 speech, quote, the key requirements today are the return of land rights to the people and the implementing of legislation that will ensure independence and self-determination for the Aborigines of Australia. So she began to get more involved in the community and in council, she began attending meetings of the Queensland Council for the Advancement of the Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders, also known as QCOTC, I think is how you pronounce that. Years later, she also became the Queensland State Secretary of the Federal Council for the Advancement of Aborigines and Torres Strait Islanders. She has a long history of being involved with them. So over the years she was doing a lot of things with that organization. At the same time, she was still writing, so she sent the publisher of Jacaranda Press her poetry manuscript, and he passed it on to reader Judith Wright, and she recommended publication, and the two of them did have a relationship. It was interesting that Judith Wright wrote a poem for Kath Walker, and then Kath Walker was so affected or moved by that poem that she said that she couldn't write. A response till years later. And she did end up writing a response years later. But in 1964, We Are Going was published, and that was the first, that was her first, which I realized we didn't say in the beginning. I didn't say in the beginning, but it was the first, surprise. It was the first published volume of poetry by an Aboriginal
0: Australian. I like the surprise
2: <laughs> first.
0: You're like the whole time, like, what is it? What could it be? Well, you know,
2: that's how a lot of the TV shows are going, where they give you a good point of the plot, and then they do the like actual introduction. It's like, hey, here's what the show title is. This is what... Doing, yeah, be in the middle of it before you can find it.
3: <laughs> it's a surprise, surprise. It's like oh yeah, a multi layer one. <laughs> mm-hmm. It was well received, but there were also people who dismissed it as just like protest poetry, just propaganda. Some people even accused her of not writing it because she was an Aboriginal Australian. She later said quote, one thing that happens when you have a bit of white blood in you and have a bit of white education is that when you misbehave, people say, aha, that's the Aboriginal in you. And when you accomplish something, they'll say, aha, that's the white coming out in you. It happened as a child and it still happens. She went on to publish more books. She published, over the course of her life, children's books, more poetry collections, essays. She did lectures, all those things. But in 1966, she published The Dawn is at Hand. Um, She also got plenty of awards, um, which we don't need to go through all of them. But for instance, in 1967, she won the Jesse Litchfield Award for Literature, and her work sold pretty well. So between all this work that she and other activists were doing, and the type of work that she was putting out through her poetry. She was a a big voice in getting other people involved in the fight for Aboriginal rights. And eventually, all of this movement work that people were doing led to the 1967 referendum, in which Australians voted to amend the Constitution to allow the Commonwealth to make laws for First Nations peoples and to include them in population counts. It did not, though... This had already been done because it did not grant Aboriginal people's citizenship. they had already had that. It didn't grant the wage equality either or the right to vote. they had already had the right to vote at that time in all states and Commonwealth elections. But hint, hint, there were still other repressive Queensland laws in place after that referendum was passed. In fact, Cath went on to say later that it was just like something that was done for white people's convenience. Like it was something that made them feel a little bit better about themselves. But it was still a point in progress that was fought for by many people who have been doing work to get to something like this. So not to just be dismissive of that, but also to acknowledge the fact that it was something that didn't completely measurably change and improve all the really serious conditions that Aboriginal peoples were facing. So, yeah. So she continued to travel extensively nationally, campaigning for Aboriginal rights, having conversations on things like racism around the world, Aboriginal culture, poetry, uh, conservationism, like environmental issues. She spoke in places like Malaysia, the Soviet Union, Nigeria, and the United States. And in 1970, she published My People. That first edition of My People, uh, which is a collection of poetry, was dedicated to the Brisbane Aboriginal and Islander Council, whose policy is self-determination. That was the dedication in the front of My People. So, clearly how important it was to say that and for her to mention self-determination at the front of that, which was something that was a shift in thinking for her. In a way, she saw, you know, in the beginning, a lot of these organizations that she was working with was headed up by white people. And white people approached her and other Aboriginal peoples to take part in these initiatives. But she also, she began to see more of... but over time, but she saw the benefit of union among Aboriginal peoples in them forming their own organizations rather than counting on the advocacy of white people and white-dominated organizations and the coalition between the groups, also another parallel that can be formed in the United States as well in how many institutions and organizations were headed up by well-meaning white people. Right. She believed in Aboriginal Australians advancing their own cause and that coalitions cannot be effective if they're based on what white people want and their customs. So you'll see that play out in her poetry as well. Her talking about how she, she, she does have this all one race <laughs> vibe happening in her work. But she also talks about how there are fundamental differences in customs and quote what she calls moral behaviors that cannot be reconciled. So if somebody is coming in I.e., when I say somebody, white people are coming in and making decisions based on their own customs and their own thoughts about things without letting Aboriginal Australians have their own say in policy and in the things that govern their lives and tell them how they should survive in the land that is originally theirs, it's not going to work. So though she had been a key voice in the progress that led to the 1967 referendum, she came to think it was more for them. It was more them than us. And she remarks that the optimism that she and a lot of other people have previously had, there is a lot of hope in her poetry, a lot of future-facing, forwardness, like looking. There's a lot of that in her poetry. But she and others at the same time were also understandably bending to the despair of facing the same problems, waning hope, an uncertain future, all the things that plague us as humans. But of course, in her specific situation after you're Trying so hard and being so vocal and and exerting so much life force toward a specific cause and not seeing motion like you want to see it, as can happen then. So, yeah, she continued to publish things and she published the Black Commandments in 1969, this was including commandments like, Thou shalt gather thy scattered people together and thou shalt work for Black liberation. And there are other ones you can go read it. But in 1971, she did start to face health challenges and challenges from younger Aboriginal leaders. She uh, resigned from some of the committees she was on, and she moved back to Menjerabah. And that did not mean that all of her work stopped. Like, you know, she was just no longer involved in the community and the work that she was doing. She continued to do it. It just looked a little bit different. She did continue writing, although there was a gap in her work. There was a, a gap in her work that happened when it came to her published work. So what happened when she went back to Menjerabah, she uh, submitted an application to lease and eventually purchase about five acres of land there with the hopes of constructing a museum, an art gallery. And she did not get permanent ownership. She wasn't granted it, but she was granted a 25-year lease that was later extended to a lifetime lease. And that place was called Moon Galba. And that meant sitting down place is what I think that meant. And it became more than a museum and art gallery. It was a a place for learning and cultural exchange. And when I saw, like, when I watched the videos of it and her in that space and her talking about it and other people remarking on it, it just seems like such a magical place that I'm like, ooh, I really wish that I could have gone there because (laughs) it seemed like it was really rich and fulfilling. And also a place where cultural exchange happened. It happened for children and it was just really nice to see her interacting with them and like how how enlightening something like that can be. Um, she would put on holiday camps for the children, teach them how to be self-sufficient. Um, and it, and then it was also in such a beautiful space. I'm just like, oh, like I wish I could be there. But <laughs> thousands of students visited there. Student teachers also went there, learned about Aboriginal culture, conservation, poetry, and other things. So yeah.
2: Listen to Technically Speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
3: There is one story that had a bit of traction in her life, and that was the story when she was on a plane that was hijacked and... They wanted uh, Palestinian prisoners to be released. And while she w- she wrote while she was on that plane on the back of a sick bag. So while she was on the plane, she was writing poetry. One was about, and you can go, read. there are two poems that she wrote. One about the situation and another one about one of the hijackers. The name of the poem is Yusuf, I believe. That was the name of the hijacker who she found out had previously been a pediatrician. And she, in that poem, is remarking on how he once held children and instead now is holding a rifle and things like that um, with a lot of compassion. Like, there was a lot of compassion that ran through her poetry. So I will talk about her poetry for a little bit. She wrote about a bunch of different things. Obviously, it was very intertwined, like I said, with her the causes that she cared about in her activism. But there was a range... Of emotions and like human things that humans can relate to that she wrote about. So there were things like racism, assimilation, and integration. She remarked a lot on the hypocrisy of white Christians, specifically denigrating First Nations Australians and how backward it was for them to proclaim to be a part of this religion and not express that in ways. Towards First Nations Australians, um, she talked a lot about living with nature, Aboriginal spirituality and folklore, being her own dedication to advancing er- Aboriginal rights. She talks about that in the poem "My Love" and just how dedicated she is to it and how it's inextricable. Like from she, she has to do it <laughs> and she's compelled to do it and and how important it is to her. And the necessity of sorrow and grief, how they go hand in hand with love. That was one that I really liked. Aboriginal customs, like corroboree which was a dance ceremony. Um, she talked about hope in the future, like I mentioned earlier. So a lot of her poems are technically simple, but moving. Um, and also obviously very meaningful to her and to her community in general. She published children's books like Stratbroke Dreamtime and Father Sky and Mother Earth. And that was in the 70s and 80s. And she was also a visual artist and she created illustrations that accompanied her poetry. So she she did a lot. And in the documentary Shadow Sister, she said that she didn't have a lot of money, but that she was rich in peace and serenity when she was at Moon Galba. She seemed very content when she said that.
2: that, <laughs> <laughs> I feel like a lot of the work that she was doing, especially as she was in, in all of her works, is a lot about preservation and mm-hmm. making sure that her culture is remembered. Because I'm guessing mm-hmm. uh, before she started all of this, she she knew a lot of things from her parents, her father, who would teach them, but Mm -hmm. it was all word of mouth. And we know we've lost so much because when we do see uh, things like colonization, they take away history. That's kind of the point of colonization is to take one type of history and change it or remove it so that the oppressor's history can be the one that dominates it. So Mm -hmm. it seems like uh, this is something that she was able to do in such a beautiful way, in a way that a lot of people don't have the talent, including myself, to (laughs) do so to preserve her culture and it makes me both happy and sad to know that this is this like I'm glad she was able to do it and in such an amazing way to express it but also that it has to be this way and in order to for it to continue is for her to continue to fight and man she was in her 50s when she kind of stopped Mm quote-unquote that's a long time to be working as young as she was when she started to try to fight for just her existence and her people's existence
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, I like that you said preservation because that showed up in her work in so many different ways, like the actual preservation of the land, but also the preservation of her culture, you know, in a very tangible way because she was writing things down Um about her life specifically so the preservation of her own singular history but also of the traditions and the customs that she was familiar with uh, she was able to share those in person during her life but also in works that lived a lot longer after she did
1: mm-hmm.
3: so like i said she didn't she had a gap of of writing she hadn't written poetry in years when she went to china in 1984 but she was inspired to write again when she was there. And those poems were published in English and Chinese. Uh, it was called Kath Walker in China. So that year, the year of publication was 88, 1988, but the books didn't get to Brisbane until late 1989. She also worked on a film as a consultant, the film The French Dwellers. And she had an acting role in that film. And... She was known as Kath Walker up until 1988, like I said, but upon the Australian Bicentenary in 1988, um, which was a marker of the arrival of the first fleet of British convict ships in Australia, Ujuru handed back her member of the Order of the British Empire, which she was awarded in 1970, and she publicly changed her name to Ujuru, which is a word for the paper bark tree. And she did use the name privately before this, but this is when in a symbol of protest um and solidarity. She did hand back that medal that was awarded to her by the Empire who still hadn't done who still hadn't done things while at the same time she was being given this medal for a thing. So as many people did return or reject their medals from the British Empire. Um, she did the same in that moment. It like, it's been 200 years and we're still fighting for the same things. And I just, I don't need this empty um, marker of achievement or accomplishment. Um, that's less important than what's more important. And she showed that by um, changing her name to Ujiru. So she was recognized during her lifetime and after She received honorary doctorates from several universities, and she passed away in September of 1993. But like I said, you can still read her work. Some of it's a little bit harder to access, but her book, My People, is actually still in print and on the fifth edition. I believe I recommend that you read it so you get a chance to see some of the stuff that she did write. But I really connected to a lot of her poems, you know. Um, And even though I have no personal lived experience of being an aboriginal person and I still was able to form a lot of connections with the poetry that she wrote as a person who cares about and has experienced a lot of the same issues that she was talking about. For, For instance, one of her poems called The Past especially stood out to me specifically in this moment because we are, it's February and we're in black history month and I'm consistently thinking about the past, but of course, in this moment, it's specifically appropriate. Um, The poem Talks about nostalgia, communing with ancestors, her being in the space where she is today in this mode of comfort. I think she says she was by a heater in a chair or something like that. These these technologies that we have today, her taking herself back to a place in the woods, in nature, by fire, being able to commune with her ancestors and to be in a space that was in her blood. Also intimating that the past is not gone, that this moment that we're in is fleeting And also that this moment that we're in is the culmination of so much history. And these are things that I think about all the time. So, yeah, I think that there's probably, well, I won't say probably because who am I to bet on probability like that? But there's a good chance that a lot of people will find something in her work that they can empathize with, um, have possibly experienced, but also just appreciate from Seeing things from her standpoint and being able to understand why she cares so much about the things she did, it's clear that she was a very passionate individual, very unapologetic about being who she was and caring about the things that she did and unendingly dedicated to them. And that shows up, that shows up in her work. And I'm glad that there were people who supported her and were able to. Of course, she did a lot of the work herself, but community is so important in, in her being able to form this sort of international community where she could share her thoughts with others, be an educator, and create art.
2: Right. I, I think as we're talking about all of this in her works and what she did in and, and her fight and just finding peace, uh, as you're talking about, I have a moment of trying to. It's hard not to compare what we're going through or what we see today to past things. Mm -hmm. And for not to Americanize it, I apologize. But (laughs) I know many of the indigenous native peoples here in the U.S. are still fighting to have any kind of recognition as a community, as the original uh, Native Americans to this uh, land. And the fact that they have still and continue to still be ignored today and the constant conversation about land is still a battle here um, in the US and trying to claim their own land and talking about reparations in any way whatsoever for the indigenous community. And I remember thinking, I remember hearing about the missing and murdered children, Indigenous mm-hmm. children of Australia before I did the US and realizing how big of a problem it still is and how mm-hmm. it's still not recognized and talked about and why it's such a conversation piece and why it's still shocking that people People are still finding out for the first time that it's an yeah. issue, though it's been obviously around for years, since the beginning, since the beginning of any type of colonization. And we talk about history. Like, I just can't like wrap my head around the fact that we're still here. Yeah. <laughs> and as much work as she has done, as much work as so many other activists have done, we're still here you know, Mm -hmm. and why that we're talking about there first is so important because we so often ignore it or don't know about it because I did not know about this poet, this activist, until you brought her to us. Thank you very much, Eve. But the fact of the matter is, we have to have these continued conversations because for so long, they're in the background. We pushed them, we as a society today, me as a person of color that is not of the indigenous or the uh, Black community, have pushed them because we have not done the research or we don't, we just don't know where to go sometimes with yeah. the fact that that this is why this is so important because we're still here. Yeah. Can you tell I'm frustrated?
3: <laughs> <laughs> and, and to add on top of that also, the you were mentioning the things that are still happening, like the destruction of natural resources as well, when you were drawing the parallel between what First Nation people are struggling against in the Americas as well versus Australia, because that was a big part of what she cared about too. Like there are things that are and that she acknowledged and that are lost over time in terms of the things that people can do and the practices that people are familiar with, how we treat the earth. So she talked about how much was being lost by colonization in the way that people were treating their natural resources in the earth and hoping that We would be able to see the light, so to say, Mm -hmm. and understand that there were things that we had to change in order to create a better future for all of us. Like there were Mm -hmm. matters that were specifically important to First Nations peoples in Australia, but these were things that affected everybody. I said infected, that felt like a Freudian slip because I guess technically (laughs) we're (laughs) infecting the earth as well. Yes, Um, <laughs> so killing off yeah. a lot of things. <laughs> oh. <Yeah. laughs> um, but yes, on, to your point, Samantha. Is there are so many things that um, it can be discouraging to look and see that there were things that she cared about back into the mid 1900s and was talking about for decades over her lifetime and still haven't been addressed, um, let alone changed. Because a lot of the things that you were mentioning just now, Samantha, in terms of not only is it just they haven't been addressed, it's also like a lot of people are still in denial of the fact that they exist and are even happening. And so to know that we have to go through that hurdle to be able to hit the point of meaningful change, it sounds like a huge task and it is a huge task. But I think it's good to—it's uh, it's, it's this double-edged sword of—and I think about this in terms of my own blackness. This is what I can relate it to, but a double-edged sword of knowing just how resilient I am and we are, but also how resilient we have to be because of the circumstances.
4: Snag a job is where America goes to hire
2: Listen to, technically speaking, an Intel podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You know, I can't, and I've been thinking on this a lot. We, we're about to do book club is bell hooks. And of course, you know, she makes you think on mm-hmm. every level. But It's been the conversation and the word colonizer has been around for a long time, but it's kind of came back as a pointed argument to be like, hey, yes, colonization was bad and this is why we need to talk about it. And now it's getting to the point that it's kind of in that CRT conversation of like, Don't call me a colonizer. That's rude. Like, I'm not my (laughs) ancestors. That that conversation has been coming around. And one of the things that I can't help but think of, especially when we're talking about, like, first peoples slash indigenous people, is that fact that colonization partially is due to the fact that if we accept the status quo of the power of the people who are in power. That is the definition of what colonization did and has done and is continuing to do in that whole, we need to just accept it and don't rock the boat. And if you say it out Mm -hmm. loud and we can't just accept what is happening, what has been happening, then you're the problem. Why are you Mm -hmm. making this a problem? And I'm thinking Mm -hmm. about this as a person of color that was in a white community, my white family, and how often I would tiptoe around to make them comfortable to say, you're right. When affirmative action was starting to be a conversation in the 90s, was it? Uh, Especially when it came to colleges. I remember my family having a big debate about it. Me coming in as a teenager, being the model minority that I knew I was supposed to be, said, oh yeah, I definitely don't want anything based on my race. I want to be able to say I earned it, which is a whole lot of bullshit. This is the narrative that a lot of the uh, white community want us to have in order to say, you know, it's not about all these things, but we know... Now as an older person, I was like, oh, the playing field was never equal. There was no equity to this at all. And it was based on who they liked and it was based on a system that was corrupt and about who was in power. Okay, now I get it. But that conversation is the fact that this is a part of the colonization conversation that we have when we say that we have to accept what was there before us. And therefore, if we rock the boat, then we are the problem. And and we cannot talk about this in a manner which we are uncomfortable. And when we say we, we mean white people. We mean those who are in power. And I feel like I'm being very anti-white. I'm not necessarily saying that at all, but this is when we're talking about colonization and why we have to say what it is. And if it makes you uncomfortable, then we need to break down about why that was uncomfortable. And I'm going on a rant. Why that makes you uncomfortable. Because it has been this conversation once again, and it's cyclical. And I feel like we are coming back to at least learning a little more, learning a little more. It took me to now honestly, to my 40s to understand why this word is so important and that it should make everybody uncomfortable as you, as it is. And if you agree that you liked how it was, then you are on the side of colonization. Yes. Does that makes sense in my giant it, it, rain? So
3: well, I should have. Yes, I should have I been taking notes because I had notes about a couple of things you said. But thinking about the word colonizer because, you know, I, I do so many history podcasts and have done so many history podcasts. I, I think about that a lot, that word. And, and invader and explorer and conqueror and all of those words that exist. Uh, a settler. Oh, that is a big one. I just, uh
0: The word, (laughs) the
3: word, settler. Just, I just, I feel it in my core. But, um, yeah, I think about that a lot and how, how difficult it is to talk about language because it's something that is transformed so much and is also so important. And we all speak different languages in so many different ways. But also how one does not necessarily negate the other. I think that's a, a nuanced part of the conversation where it's like. Words have connotations and they build connotations over time, but like somebody is a colonizer because they are a colonizer, because they did the deed, you know, it's an active word. They did the deed of colonizing. And at the same time, okay, you can call them explorer (laughs) from from their perspective, you know, they were exploring. (laughs) So, I mean, both of those things can exist at the same time. And of course, both of those things have a lot of asterisks. Um, beneath them, it's like more conversation that needs to happen. But that's what happens when you have such a large thing boiled down into however many letters is in those words. Things deserve more conversation, and that's okay. Like, we don't have to be afraid of those conversations. And another thing that you reminded me of when you said um, you use the words rocking the boat. Um, that was actually something that came up in Ujuru's story because she was involved in these councils that had a lot of white people in them, like FKC. And a lot of the people in there were trying to maintain the status quo. And she and others had to fight back against that. But and and that wasn't just other white people, that was other Aboriginal peoples as well who were who didn't know what to do. Like, is should I? Should should we form a council of just Aboriginal peoples? Like, is that the thing that we should do? Should we, what is the best way to advance? And it's like, that's a question that we're forever going to be asking ourselves. Like, what is the right thing to do? We don't know until we do the thing. And even then, I don't know what's right and what's wrong. Um, so sometimes. But yeah, uh, that was also part of her story and what she was able to do or just exist in that lineage of people who she was able to do certain things because of other people who came before her. And then other people were able to have some sort of guidance because she had already taken all this action before them. And so this idea of self-determination, self-sufficiency, the ideologies, the, the thoughts in her own practice of activism, that changed over her time when it came to her being more about that solidarity and unity among Aboriginal peoples and that self-determination was able to inspire and be a point on the timeline of that evolution.
2: Right. Yeah, and her timing was... Right in there. She was obviously at the beginning of so many of the changes in Australia, as you were talking about. Because, right, I was seeing that the uh, majority of voting rights for uh, Aboriginal people did not happen until, like, 1963. And that, though some states had, it, had the rights, it wasn't an overall countrywide thing. And she obviously was in the middle of that and a part of that. So she was in the fight. Now, my question is, because being active in so many of the communities, I'm like, I've often been the token person and in being told, at least we got, see, we got, we got a person of color here. She she, she exists. I wonder how oftentimes they would point and be like, look, we got, we got one, which is also that whole like uh, performative awarding. Like, mm-hmm. I, I understand why she was like, nah, I don't want it. Give, it, give it back. I don't want anything to do with this because I wonder how often that did happen in her life being on the forefront of trying to make change, but being blocked in so many ways.
0: Yeah, yeah. I love that she was so active in the school and like with children. I really mm-hmm. like that she wrote books for children, and was trying to at a young age like have this influence and and have these conversations that are so 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 important. Uh, that's one of my favorite parts of her story. And and working on podcasts yeah, language is so important. It's so important. And you have to think about what word you choose and why you chose it and what impact it has. Mm-hmm. And she seems like somebody. I really encourage people to go out and read her poetry because it's so it's easy to read, but it she does so much with, like so little. Like she mm-hmm. immediately yeah. kind of like hooks you in. Mm-hmm. and you even though the words might seem simple, yeah, like it just it resonates. Mm-hmm. It's powerful. It does. And I think that shows, like, just how wonderful and of a writer she was, and how she knew, like, how to work with words and how to work with people's emotions. And that she was feeling these things and she was able to make you feel them too. And I think that's so much skill. And mm-hmm. I I loved... I'm so happy when you bring someone <laughs> I haven't heard of and I'm like, oh, I get to read poetry. Oh, yeah, oh I'm so moved. <laughs> I love it. And that's the other thing about
3: it. Like, it's not a necessarily an easy read in terms of the context and mm-hmm. what she's talking about. But it's, you know, you, you can get through a book of poetry. You know, it goes pretty quickly. So if you're hesitant <laughs> or skeptical <laughs> about any of it, it's not
0: hard to pick up, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's one of the one of my favorite things about art in all of its many forms is when you can have something like that where you can bring people into this difficult subject matter. Yeah. But that in a way that they can connect to and and will stick with them and make them think.
3: Yes. Um, Because if you're not particularly interested and obviously, as we talked about her story, Ujuru was not steeped in the academic world. And... That space can be so alienating to so many people and so foreign to so many people, and to say that because something is simple means that it's in it's not valuable. I mean, doesn't make any sense. No, <laughs> <laughs> to put it <laughs> to put it uh, smartly. Um, yeah, so <laughs> it's it's good. It's it's good. Like they're so they're so touching. So many is so touching and so visceral and. It does with poetry. It does what poetry does.
0: It does. It does. Highly recommend seeking it out. There's plenty of places that have a lot of samples if you just want to taste to see if you're into it. Uh, but yeah, I really loved it. Well, is that... Have we wrapped up the story, Eve? I think that's all I got. All right. Well, thanks as always for coming. We're always so happy to have you. <laughs> happy to be here. Yes, thank yes. you for bringing
2: all these people who we need to know more of.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes, 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 yes. Where can the good listeners find you? You can find me
3: online at evesjeffcoat.com. Instagram, not apologizing, <laughs> Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I know I'm so look, I'm clearly jaded at uh, <laughs> Twitter at eavesjefcoat, and on this very podcast here, doing other episodes of Female First for a lot of people. You can go check out.
0: Yeah. I love it. I love the jaded like uh, <laughs> find me. Here I am. If I, <laughs> I exist. <laughs> you should definitely seek Eves out if you haven't already listeners. Her content is amazing. Um, and you can seek us out as well. You can email us at Stephanie and MomStuff at iHeartMedia.com. You can find us on Twitter at MomStuffPodcast or on Instagram at Stuff Mom Never Told You. Thanks as always to our super producer Christina. Thank you. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff Mom Never Told You is production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio visit the iHeartRadio app Apple Podcast, or wherever not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life.
2: PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865.
0: Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC.
1: Rev up your thrills this summer at Cedar Point on the all-new Top Thrill 2. Drive the sky on the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch vertical speedway.